Hi everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ebopedia. I am your host, Chisun, and my special guest is Nigerian writer, Chigozie Ubioma. He is best known for writing the novels The Fisherman and An Orchestra of Minorities, both of which were shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2015 and 2019. This made Chigozie one of only two writers to have been honoured in this way. Between these two books, Chigozie's work is being translated into 30 different languages. In a review by the New York Times, he was called the heir to Chinua Achebe. Chigozie is a graduate of Cypress International University and the University of Michigan. He currently teaches at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and was recently named as a judge for the 2021 Booker Prize. In this episode, we will discuss how he became an author, his latest novel, An Orchestra of Minorities, and Igbo Cosmology. Welcome to the show, Chigozie. Thank you very much, Chisum. It's a pleasure to join this very auspicious uh, endeavor. I believe that is something that will be very useful in the long run. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. And we will have a really great discussion, I'm sure. So let's get straight to it. Starting with your early life and how you became a writer. Firstly, which part of Igbo land are you from? All right. So the one thing that I don't think we talked about that I think is necessary is we are doing an Igbo thing. So we have to, at some point, speak Igbo. <laughs> I don't know if I've asked you before if you speak Igbo, but I would begin my answer by at least, you know, putting in some Igbo there. Yes, that's great. All right. So Nde Bae, Nde Wono. Avambochi Gozio Bioma, Asim, Ebana, Boabia State, but Mba in Bende, local government, Abia State. So Abumo Daakuko. Ebim Obodo Ndiochana Boy United States of America. Obu Biomam Kanji Naeba Agama Chino Nigeria Ebendem Mana Sobudi Ebani Aguna Agundem Mado Abiase Boko Haram Menkia. The idea of reincarnation of the ancestral aveta, the ontological phenomenon of Iluwa, you know. Mm -hmm. This was attached to a particular name that certain people called me, and also some of my siblings, which was not my real name, but it was the name of the character, the ancestor, whom it is believed that I embody. So... That's really interesting. And I think we'll delve into the this whole Igbo religion and cosmology in more detail later. But I'd like to understand a little bit who your early influences were when it came to writing. Who were your inspirations? I think I would say that I read mostly British writers. I mean, that wouldn't surprise anyone because of the influence, of course, of the British yeah. and Nigeria and the curricula of that time. So it just so happened that most of the books that my dad had were obviously British writers. So there was a lot of Shakespeare. There was a lot of classical Greek literature. And also, yeah, to some extent, the cheap crime fiction that you had, you know, Hadley Chase yeah. and whatnot, all of that. But also, you know, the Nigerian classics, Achebe's novels, as well as the different works of... Uh, Walesho Inka and all these 
earlier writers. So these were really the ones that I read. Mm. I feel like I was mostly drawn to the work of someone like Amos Tutuola because I grew up in Yoruba land too. And uh, I became invested as well in the in the culture there. I just really loved his work because of the transcendence, the shifting between the real and the supernatural. And so aspects of my work that are mystical might have been shaped in some ways by that. But describe how you decided to move abroad and study in Cyprus. And can you discuss and tell us a little bit more about what your experiences were and what stood out the most to you during your time as a student in Cyprus? I went to school in Cyprus. It was a very weird experience because it's not the place where you want to go to. (laughs) It's not. I was going to come to the UK actually, but, you know, I had some issues with the visa and it was a very unjust thing. You know, I was like, issued a visa but then it was then taken away from me i went to cyprus and then afterwards as i was graduating from my college uh, i had finished the fisherman so i was thinking okay what do i do from here if not to try to get you know some kind of publishing contract for it and i felt like I didn't have any connections in Cyprus. It was just like a Turkish-speaking country. You know, nobody was really that interested in what I was doing. So I elected to go to the U.S. to do an MFA. So I had completed my novel by then. I came here to do an MFA. I was hoping to go back. But you know how it is. People in Nigeria would not even want you to come back. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so now I am basically living here. Okay. This segment is called Desert Island Recommendations. So here's a scenario for you. You are stuck on a desert island, but you can take three things with you and we'll talk about it. So one is music, the other is books, and the other thing is podcasts. So tell me the top three music tracks that would be on your playlist or at least music artists that you would like to take um, download when you go on this desert island. Okay, that's interesting. I listen to more old-fashioned music, I guess. <laughs> it's, I like this Kenyan artist, you know, by the name of Lady JD. I think that her music is very good, even though I don't understand what she says. <laughs> but also, mostly Asha, who is a Nigerian, but based in France, in Paris. I think I like the etty and very Yoruba, you know, heavy mm-hmm. feel of our music. And they are very deep as well. Probably the third one would be, hmm, it's very difficult to, who has interested me recently? Okay, let's say, well, Kid Cody. Sometimes I like his music as well. So so that's music. That's good. That's a diverse playlist. So this is another thing that really interests me because listening to authors and see what books they like to read. So on this desert island, what book would you take with you? Well, that's interesting. I would. It's very difficult to ask a writer questions about (laughs) books (laughs) because I feel like reading has been my life. So I've read so many books. I've loved so many books, but just because of the ones I've talked about recently. 
I would just say The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro, who is a British guy, I think. He won the Nobel Prize a few years ago. I teach the novel quite often, and I think it's a very good book. More recently, The English Patient has been very interesting yeah. to, for me. I mean, I, I think it's a great book, even though it has its problems. But I generally agree with the acclaim that it has received. And uh, perhaps the strange mystical power of The Passion According to G.H. by Clarice Lispector, who was a Brazilian writer, an extraordinary work of fiction. So, yeah, I remember reading that book about a decade ago, but I couldn't get into it, but I recently reread it and I really loved it, yes. Do you listen to podcasts? And if so, which podcasts would you take with you on this desert island? I like Joe Rogan a lot. Quite a number of times I've listened to him. I think that he has a eclectic and open-minded view. These days, you have people who think of themselves as liberals, but they are actually extremely narrow-minded. You know, if you don't think as they are, they cannot stand you. They want to, if possible, even kill you, you know, because mm. you don't believe the same thing to the letter as them. So, so I like that he is not ideologically narrow-minded. So that guy, there's one called On Being, which looks at the metaphysical things and spirituality. I've forgotten the name of the lady who runs it. It's on NPR in America here. Okay. So I will be on one called The History of Literature. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a major podcast, actually. I mean, I didn't know about it until they asked to interview me. So that will be on Tuesday. So obviously, you know, it has like a tens of thousands of listeners, yeah. which, you know, I guess after appearing on it, I'm going to like it or something. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to that one as well. So let's talk about your book, An Orchestra of Minorities, which we touched on earlier. It's your second novel after your debut novel, which was The Fisherman. And An Orchestra of Minorities was shortlisted for the 2019 Man Booker Prize. And it's a modern twist of the Odyssey and Igbo cosmology. Interestingly, the novel's narrator is a deceased spirit, Chi. It is said that if you want to understand certain aspects of Igbo religion, you must begin with the Chi. What exactly is this chi? You alluded to it earlier, but what is the basic definition of it? I see it as an index of divinity in every human being. Every individual has this being in them. It's a complex thing. I think to be able to first understand it, I think what you need to first think of is the as an a priori factor in the understanding of the Igbo worldview is that there is a belief in the dualism of everything. Even in language, there are some words that come together. You know, the Igbo's belief that where one thing stands, another thing will stand beside it. For instance, there is this word we use a lot, even in, in English, but in Nigerian African English, compound. When somebody says this is our compound, it's like yard in the American parlance. So the Igbo concept of compound is in no law. So which means that the outside or the exterior and the interior. So words like that, uh, 
Oriri and Quarry, you know, for like party, drinking and eating. So there's not the idea of duality, then it will make more sense what the chi is. So the chi is like a kind of a duplicate entity of an individual, but which does not exist just in the plane of the physical, but in the supernatural. Again, this is because if we can see the world, if something is visible, then there has to be an equivalent invisible structure, you know, as that. So that's really what the chi is. So it did exist in that alternate world that is complementary in some ways to the uh, physical one. So, yeah, in the epigraph of the novel, I do actually leave the, a definition from Chinua Achebe essay, I think in which he describes it as uh, the, I don't have a copy of the book, near me here, but he, he says, I think he's the other identity of a person in the other world or something like that. So basically right. what I just described. Yeah, that's very well put. And I find this whole idea of Igbo cosmology really interesting. And it's obviously a central part of the novel. It would be great if you could give us like a 101 on what exactly Igbo cosmology is, starting from the fundamental belief and who are the main deities, for example. As it is in an orchestra of minorities, when you read the book, you would understand that I think, at least in my opinion, and you know, I might not be right here, but I think the most important facet of the worldview, I'm using worldview now because it encompasses both the religion and its cosmology, the cosmology obviously being something that is a subset of the religion. In the worldview, I think the chi actually is the most important concept. Close to the chi is the kinga and the reincarnation and all those things. So, but if you're talking about the pantheon, the deities, they are numerous and they are diverse. If you go from the north of Igbo land, the Nkano Enugu area, to the deep south, that would be Umuahia area where I come from and Ibeku Ngwa and Aruchuku and the rest of them. There are divergences and then you go even further to you know again Abakeliki area. So Chuku for instance appears in the cosmology of the southern part of Igbo land, but you don't find that in certain areas in the north. One that is common throughout is Allah Oani which is the okay. custodian of the earth, uh, the goddess of the earth, and who is obviously feminine in gender. So the Igbos were not necessarily interested in the gender of their deities, but that one actually does have gender. So the gender of Chuku, who is supposed to be the supreme being, is not known, but in certain areas, of course, it is seen as male, but there are gods that are attributed, they're attributive in nature. So they emerge because of certain events that have happened in like very, very, very long time past or certain right. phenomenon. For instance, if there was an earthquake in a particular village or town and a particular deity can emerge in the healing process of the people. And that becomes the god 
of these, you know, maybe the God of structures, of architecture or something like that. So you have gods like that, like Njokuji in the Mpare area of Abia State is in some ways unique to those people because sometimes they used to get a lot of rain that would make it almost impossible for yams to grow. And mm-hmm. so the idea of rain making, that phenomenon of being able to stop rain and all that, which actually was real. I don't know how they do it, but there's some kind of meteorological intervention that was possible. Of course, they tell you that it was a spiritual thing, which I think I believe as well. So because of that, the priest that was making that happen had a God attributed to it, which was the Njokuji. So you still find the shrine of that God in my village. Absent the interaction with the gods, obviously being a spiritual way of life, being a religion, it's relevance in the personal lives of people. Mm -hmm. So the way that people live, just like Christianity, for instance, or Islam is supposed to, you know, if you're a Christian, for instance, you have to be the husband of one wife or, you know, you cannot be polygamous or whatnot. So that also informed the way people lived from time to time. So where you had, like in societies where, for instance, Amandioha was seen as a predominant god, you could not, the blacksmiths, for instance, were seen as the most important people in society. They were like the way you venerate, Americans venerate their soldiers, you know, veterans. So you had all that. And in places where there was, say, the society worshipped Ojuku, which was like the god that had to do with death and the afterlife, the vultures were revered. So there were differences in various okay. places. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. And for me, what I find kind of sad in a way is the fact that this rich history was kind of overtaken by Christianity. How do you think we can preserve this? Because obviously the world or West Africa's post-colonization has been heavily influenced by Christianity. And it's unlikely that that will change and people will shift back to the old religion. But in your view, what, what can we do to kind of hold on to this culture without people feeling that they fundamentally have to change their current beliefs and their religion? Well, I like the word preserve because I think that that is the only thing you can do at this point. So I said during the interviews in one of the videos with the Man Booker Prize that the, an orchestra minorities for me was a labor of love for me. I feel like it's that walk. That was what was moving me, the walk of preservation. I see it as a kind of monument. I, I hope that two years, five years, 10 years from now, if you want to understand how the was, because there's been a lot of historical writing, even novels, things fall apart, for instance. I think if there's any merit to the novel, and there's a lot, obviously, it is that it documents an arrow of God as well how they was lived in pre-colonial times. You know, mm-hmm. the marriage, how did they get married? What was their occupation? Like, the some total way of life. What was birthing children? Like, what was the culture around that? How did they eat? Did they have, like, Christmas and festivities? What was it like? So it paints a whole portrait of society. But how about the beliefs, the philosophies, the conscious, you know, other part of uh, society. Nobody has actually written anything about that. There was a book called um, I Saw the Sky Catch Fire 
which came out in the 1990s by Obin Karam Echewa. But even that one, again, it treated the cosmology a little bit. So this is really the first novel that really goes deep into the cosmology of the Igbo people. So that is one way. I think that that novel, I mean, right now, already, I think people are acknowledging seeing it that way. So, but there are themes. So I wouldn't say that it's only me who is doing that work, at least in literature, I think I might be mm. one of the first right now, but there, there's a quite a number of themes, which even though they are very low quality, that are very interested in that. I acknowledge the work of Ernest Obi, who is, I mean, obviously his films are cheap. So, I mean, I don't blame him, obviously, you know, the resources they have and whatnot. But the guy's films are deep. And not just him, there's quite a number of them that are doing stuff like that. So that's one way. Again, I don't see any other thing we can do because Nigeria is in a state where you cannot talk about culture necessarily because Culture is what people think about when they have fed, when they have eaten. We are in a state of subsistence. That is what people are interested in now. You know, so Americans and British people can talk about white supremacy and, I mean, not even white supremacy, but microaggression or, or whatnot as their greatest problems. So their greatest problem can be how people talk. What do people tweet those are first world problems. Like if you ask my mom on what scale of your needs, you know, the problems you have, where does microaggression go, you know, on the scale of things? It's not even going to, or even why, why supremacy would not even be, you know, the first 50 of the things she's going to list. Of course, I mean, they appreciate culture. I'm sure they watch films and whatnot, but those deep concerns are not there yet. I think if we have some kind of stable society, then we can talk of preserving those things. If not, what pays? Christianity, and I mean, I'm uh, Christian myself, but whatever feels of much more utility to them. They think in utilitarian terms. So what is useful for me now? I'm sick. There's no hospital. I don't have money to go to the hospital. So well, I could pray to God, so they go to church and all that. So that is what is going to happen now. And the ones who have the elite, who have the luxury to think about culture, to think about philosophy and all of these things, sadly will become more interested in the Western way of seeing the world, you know. Yeah. So Africa is treated like, I wrote an essay about this, a kind of a polemic called Westernization has failed Africa. We need to drop it. Of course, I mean, that was a waste of time, even though, like, I'm sure probably a million people have read that. Even today, I, I still receive emails from people responding to it. But that's basically what I was saying there. Africa is like a relic. It's like, you know, the Shroud of Turin or some kind of statue. Once we come to US or UK or any of these places, we like to say we're Africans because of the cultural currency it gives us, you know, you are black and whatnot. But are they really interested in Africa? So Africa is like the clothes that you wear, basically. Are they interested in ordinary? No, they're not. They're not interested in, even to go and live there, even to go and engage in a, a meaningful way in the development of that place. No, you know, it just serves them uh, because they can write a novel and 
or sing a song and it makes them, they are like people of color. You see what I'm saying? So the cultural currency that you benefit from it is really what Africa is to many of us right now. The deep, meaningful engagement is very superficial. So that's just the sad truth of the situation. There's um, just a round off our discussion on Orchestra of Minorities. It's an excellent book. And as you say, it's one of the few books, at least that I've read, that actually touches on the topic in depth of Igbo cosmology. So thank you for that. Let's switch gears a bit and talk about your literary heroes or heroines. Imagine the scenario where you are stuck in an elevator for half an hour with your favourite writer. Who would you pick to be stuck in an elevator with? And what would you discuss with them? Hmm. Again, the difficult question that uh, you ask a writer. Hmm. I would say maybe Arundhati Roy, whom I've met, obviously, before, hmm. but we've not really had like a long discussion. So I really admire The Good of Small Things. I think it's a great book, overeating in many places, but it just demands, it wears its, its uh, language and its sleeves and... I wrote an essay a few years ago where I say that it is interesting that people say that less is more. But if you think about the works that endure, that become canonized, they become so because they are actually exuberant. Mm. They bask in the excess, and it is that excess that actually makes them worthy of that continuity that people give to them. So I see that uh, reflected in the girl of something. So I would love to talk craft with her at some point. You touched on the topic of language and the Igbo language I find is one that is rich with proverbs and your novel begins with the quotation of an Igbo proverb. It says, translated, if the prey do not produce their version of the tale, the predators will always be the heroes in the stories of the hunt. Why did you choose that one in particular to begin the novel? Because I feel like that is a proverb that encapsulates the story itself, but also the technique, the structure. So one of the things that I think for me was of deep interest in the way that I structured an orchestra of minorities. So the utility of the chi is that not only is it a chronicler of history, an eccentric narrator, but it embodies for me how some of the most engaging stories were told in the Igbo culture, in the Igbo societies in the past. Mm. I witnessed one of it, even though I was very, very young. There was a man who was accused of incest when I was growing up in my dad's village. And he was asked to come and swear before the community. He was in denial. So what he could have done would have been confess. If he confessed, he would be punished and disgraced, obviously. But somehow he agreed to that swearing. So that swearing was something that happened at the village square. It is a testimony that everybody listens to. So there's a convergence. Think about his state of mind when he's telling about, you know, his own side of the story. Number one, he has sworn to this punitive deity who has the power to kill him. So he has to speak the truth. But at the same time, he wants to exonerate himself. So what does he do? His story is circumlocutory. 
he's circling, you know, he's making digressions. I I came there and but you know, then this happened. So he's loquacious, mm-hmm. he's talkative, he doesn't get straight to the point because he's afraid to. So there are digressions. Mm-hmm. Well, I always was like this, but at that time, if you remember, this was how I was. So mm-hmm. under that kind of duress, how do you tell stories? So that's one of the things that the chi does. So when you're speaking that way, the language acquires a different life to it. So the chi speaks in obviously very ornate. Its language is ornate and well adorned. I mean, this is because it has acquired different languages. It knows it has existed for quite some time and so can speak in the register of the discourses of 18th century Igbo land as well as the modern day Chinonso's mm. time. So there are just different manifestations of language, but that very epigraph speaks to that giving, that testimonial power, the idea of the living archive that is the chi being the one telling the story. Generally, that kind of testimonial storytelling is when you use that proverb. So if this person does not tell the story, someone else will tell it for them. That's the meaning of the proverb. I don't know if that yeah. answered your question. Yeah, it, it does. I love Igbo proverbs. And I think that one is a very interesting one. Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you a personal question about Igbo proverbs. What is your favorite or one or two of your favorites? Again, in that novel, but also in The Fisherman, I'm trying to... I don't like to use the word center because I feel like it's very performative and, you know, all these uh, people use it a lot. But I'm trying to create, to replicate this world where this was the natural way in which people spoke. You are not eloquent if you cannot speak in proverbs. It's just how it was. Yeah, so one that I return to very often that I think about is, in some ways, about vengeance. So, so Jiri Iregi Gweze Gono is one that I have in The Fisherman. I gabbled it uh, in that novel at first because of the way we used to say it to mock my parents. So it was turned upside down and when I was writing it. So we used to say, you know, something like that. So, <laughs> the other way around. Yeah. But that means count your teeth with your tongue. That's a mm. translation. It's really saying that you should think carefully about what you are doing or what you're about to just a kind of a call for self-assessment it's funny you mentioned that because that's one that my mother uses oh really yes. Actually, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's also like a kind of a warning um, but also another one that i find quite interesting i cannot really i'm trying to look for the equivalent i say it mostly in english that i can't even remember the equivalent now so akika being determined. Basically, the meaning is determined cannot harm the stone. So it can hover around it. It can live under it. It can just do anything to it, but it cannot affect the stone itself. Its texture, its mm. composition is intact. I thought that that was a very powerful, this is one of the, again, I'm writing an essay uh, that I've been doing for years now. I just can't bring myself to finish it about just the idea that 
all the philosophy that you have in society today. If you think about the philosophy about anything or philosophers, you don't talk about Africans, which is why I think that the decolonization thing is a joke because all the epistemic systems of knowledge is coming from the West. You know, we're talking about, you know, decolonization and critical race theory and all of these things. These are Foucault, these are French people, Marx, Karl Marx, Heidegger, and all of these guys. The reason why nobody talks about Africa is because we did not have the, at least for a long time, we didn't have the individual appellation to different philosophical truths. They were more of like a common pool philosophy. You know, so that proverb, for instance, is a very deep one. It's very deep in the sense that it talks about all kinds of things. It talks about a person, like sticks and stones cannot break me. So it's a call to resilience and whatnot. And they can talk about how individuals cannot be affected by what they don't really care about. But it's not assigned to the thinking of an individual scholar. So we just think that is not an important kind of philosophy, but it is. Excellent. I think those are two excellent proverbs and ones that I'll try and integrate into my life. I want to close by saying a big thank you for being a guest on the show. Really interesting to talk about your early influences, your literary heroes, and also the thinking behind this excellent work of literature that you wrote, An Orchestra of Minorities. So I really appreciate your time here. Before we wrap up, if our listeners are interested in getting in touch or reading some of your essays, or as you mentioned, writing for the UK Guardian or some of your novels, where do they go to find you and how can they follow you? I think my books do very well in the UK generally. You can find in most bookstores, I hope, if, if they've not taken them away. <laughs> yeah, so if you're in the UK. But my website, I think, is a compound for many things. I'm not a big social media guy, but I've been posting stuff on Instagram. So please do follow me. You know, I am looking for followers. You know, so and if you Google me, you would find my essays would find quite a number of things. But I think the novels are the ones that you should begin by reading. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Um, really appreciate you being a guest on Ibopedia. Take care. Yeah, thank you so much, Chisholm. I think it's very late for you. So thank you for staying up and doing this again. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries at all. I really appreciate you being here and enjoyed this conversation very much.